Chapter Fourteen of In Kent with Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. In Kent with Charles Dickens by Thomas Frost. Chapter Fourteen. On the following morning, as soon as I had breakfasted, I started on a ramble westward, leaving the high road and following a footpath. Or rather, a track worn by the feet of preceding ramblers along the edge of the cliff. Arable land, across which the view was extremely limited, was on my left, and on the right, below the tall white cliff, stretched the sea, which for a short time after I started was shrouded in mist. Presently the fog lifted and quickly dispersed, the sun shone out upon land and sea. And beyond the broken masses of brown and green rock below me, over which the white tipped waves were breaking, an illimitable expanse of water changed by imperceptible gradations from green to silver. Returning to the high road near the village of Birchington, I left it again by the lane which passes the railway station and terminates at a farmhouse at the western extremity of the village. From this point, There is a footpath through the marshes between Cliff End and Reculver, and which extend inland as far as Stourmouth. It is a narrow causeway between the green pastures, which stretch away on the left as far as the villages of St. Nicholas and Sar, and the strip of waste which the sea wall separates from the beach and protects from the encroachments of the waves. The yellow flowering poppy of the coast, and other plants which grow only in marshes bordering the sea, May be found in this waste, in traversing which the rambler will probably meet only a brown faced fisher boy, and hear only the bleating of sheep on the one hand, and the hoarse murmur of the sea on the other. This part of the coast abounds with evidences of the physical changes which have been going on for ages, and are still visibly in progress. The greater part of the parish of Reculver has been washed away. A yeoman whom I once met and conversed with, while resting and refreshing myself with a glass of ale at the Red Lion at St. Peter's, and whose patrimony is bounded northward by the edge of the cliff, assured me that his farm was several acres less in extent than when he inherited it. The church is a ruin, perched on the edge of the clay cliff which extends from that point to Whitstable, and has been saved from the fate which, more than half a century ago, Overtook the greater part of the burial ground only by the construction of the sea wall by the corporation of the Trinity House, by whom also the two towers of the church are maintained on account of their utility to passing vessels as landmarks. Before the cliff was faced with stone, human bones were frequently picked up on the beach, and the broken ends of coffins might be seen protruding from the crumbling face of the cliff. The name of this place is derived from the military station called Regulbium, which the Roman governors of the island established to guard the channel which in those days divided the Isle of Thanet from the mainland, but of which the only existing traces are two or three ditches through the marshes. The site was near the coast guard station, in which direction there appears to have been a considerable town. Many vaults, cisterns, and foundations of buildings having been discovered at various times by the falling of the cliff, together with large numbers of Roman and British coins, utensils, and articles of pottery. 
Some of the old chroniclers state that a palace was built here by Ethelbert I, King of Kent, and this may have been the castle mentioned by later writers, within the walls of which the church formerly stood, and some shattered portions of which still remain on the eastern and southern sides, overgrown with ivy and bryony, and half concealed in some part by elder trees. These fragments show the walls were twelve feet thick, and built of flints, pebbles, and septaria, unmingled, as at Richborough, with Roman bricks. There are no traces of towers. Of the monastery which existed here in the Anglo-Saxon period, and in the church of which the Kentish kings Ethelbert I and Ethelbert II are said to have been buried, the latter in 760, not a stone remains. To look for Roman remains here, at the present day, would be useless, the site of Regulbium having long been under water. Batterley, writing towards the end of the seventeenth century, says he remembered that, quote, when part of the cliff, being undermined by the waves, fell down some years ago, some brick foundations of great bulk were discovered, in which were some small vaults arched over and while I was examining them with my hand, I saw some fragments of a tessellated pavement, and of other Roman works. But I only saw them, for very soon after, either broken by the waves, or swallowed by the sand, even these ruins were destroyed. End quote. Hasted says that, quote, from the present shore, as far as a place called the Black Rock, seen at low watermark, there have been found great quantities of tiles, bricks, fragments of walls, tessellated pavements, and other marks of a ruinated town, and remains of household furniture, dress, and equipage of the horses belonging to the inhabitants, are continually met with among the sands, for, after the fall of the cliffs, the earthen part of them being washed away, these metalline substances remained behind. End quote. Of the old church nothing now remains but the two towers, known for ages as the two sisters, and a portion of the walls. The former vicarage house, very near these remains, has been converted into a public house, and is much frequented during the summer by visitors from Margate and Hearn Bay. The present village and church are about a mile and a half distant, in a south-westerly direction. The towers of the ancient church, which are conspicuous objects at a great distance, whether on land or sea, are often pointed out to each other by cockney voyagers as the Reculvers, which is as absurd as it would be to designate the towers of Westminster Abbey as the Westminsters. The spot is even marked by this ridiculous appellation on Bacon's map of Kent. Their traditional name originated in the circumstances of their reparation by an abbess of the Benedictine convent at Davington near Faversham, as related by a Dominican friar of Canterbury, who quitted England at the time of the Reformation and died at Louvain, bequeathing his manuscripts to the university of that city. According to this narrative, the abbess, Frances St. Clair, during a dangerous illness, vowed that in the event of her recovery she would visit the shrine of the Holy Virgin at Bradstow, as Broadstairs was then called, and there offer a costly present as a grateful acknowledgment of the saint's intercession in her behalf. 
Having recovered, she, in fulfilment of her vow, embarked aboard a small vessel, accompanied by her sister Isabel, to whom she was devotedly attached. But they had been scarcely two hours at sea when a storm arose which drove the vessel on a sandbank near a culver. The abbess, with some of the passengers and crew, succeeded in reaching the shore in a boat, and Isabel, who remained on board the disabled vessel for some hours after her sister, was, with the remainder of those on board, rescued from it by a boat sent off to their relief, but died on the following day from the effects of cold and exhaustion. In pious remembrance of the peril from which she had been delivered, and to perpetuate the memory of her sister, as well as to warn mariners from the dangerous proximity of the shoal, she caused the towers of the church, which had fallen into decay, to be repaired and raised higher, directing that they should thereafter be called the two sisters. Leaving the ancient churchyard, in which many moss-grown gravestones of considerable antiquity may be found, many of them so deeply sunk into the earth as to be overtopped by the tall nettles, I dined and rested at the neighbouring public-house, called, if I remember rightly, the King Ethelbert, which is probably unique among signs. I was the only guest that day. On a former visit, when I walked from Herne Bay on a Sunday afternoon in summer, the parlour was crowded with visitors, who filled it with a blue haze of tobacco smoke. All bona fide travellers, as defined by the statute, for they had all come from London by rail or steamboat, and walked from Herne Bay or Margate. The following day, being the last of my pilgrimage, I devoted to an inland stroll through the most pleasant spots of which Thanet can boast. Having followed the high road westward as far as Birchington, I there turned into a secluded lane on the left, which leads at a little distance to a footpath across the fields to the hamlet of Acol, and thence to Mount Pleasant, the highest spot in the island, and in the midst of scenes made interesting by their historical and legendary associations. From the summit of this hill I looked over the most extensive prospect which the eye can command anywhere between the star and the sea. To the right, looking across the green pastures between St. Nicholas and Reculver, was the sea, its emerald waves glittering in the sunlight as if tipped with silver, and the towers of the ruined church of Reculver distinctly defined against the clear blue sky in the distance. Westward, the delighted eye wanders over a wide tract of intermingled pasture, arable and woodland, pleasantly undulating, with the towers and spires of village churches rising among the distant woods, the white spire which surmounts the tower of Ash Church and serves as a landmark being especially conspicuous towards the south, and the venerable towers of Canterbury Cathedral, backed by Harbledown and the woods beyond, closing the view up the valley of the Stour. On the left is Pegwell Bay, with the Stour meandering through the once submerged flats, and guiding the eye onward to where the towers of the Sandwich churches rise against the bright blue sky, and thence to the Downs. The early history of our island seems to unfold itself before the mind's eye, as we stand on this hill and look around. It was here, according to tradition, 
that the Kentish king Ethelbert I met the Roman monk Augustine, and held the first conference on the prospect of converting to Christianity our pagan ancestors. Away to the right, where the towers of the ancient church of Reculver cut the sky, stood the palace or castle which was built by Ethelbert, and the monastery to which he is said to have retired after his conversion. Close at hand are the low green ridge which marks the course taken by Domniva's deer, and the chasm which engulfed the base assassin Thunor. To the left is Sandwich, where the galleys of imperial Rome have anchored, and whence fleets have so often sailed to prosecute the interminable Anglo-French wars of the Middle Ages. And then what memories crowd upon us as we look towards Canterbury, or gaze southward upon the shipping in the Downs. The remarkable events embodied in the legend of Domniva's deer and Thunor's leap are said by Thorne, a native of Thanet and a monk of the monastery of St. Augustine at Canterbury, to have occurred in the latter part of the seventh century. The manor of Thanet was held at that time by Egbert, king of Kent, whose nephews, Ethelred and Ethelbright, were left to his guardianship, under a solemn promise that they should succeed him in the sovereignty. Thunor, a base and sycophantic minister, advised Egbert to have these princes murdered, lest they should disturb him in the possession of the throne, which execrable deed he undertook to perform and actually perpetrated. On the crime being discovered, Egbert was advised by the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Abbot of St. Augustine's to make such atonement for it as would satisfy Domniva, the sister of the murdered princes, who was a nun. The princess demanded of the king that he should give her as much land of his manor of Thanet as would build and endow a convent, wherein she and her nuns might continually pray for his absolution and the repose of her brother's souls. Egbert granted her prayer, and asked how much land she required, when she replied as much as a deer could run over in one course. The king agreeing to this singular stipulation, a stag was taken to Westgate and liberated on the beach, in presence of all the court and a large concourse of people. Among the spectators was the assassin Thunor, who, ridiculing the monarch for his lavish gift, and the mode of determining the extent of land to be given, sought every means of obstructing the course of the deer by crossing its path and encountering it, until, says the monkish chronicler, quote, Heaven, in wrath at his impiety, while Thunor was in the height of his career, caused the earth to open and engulf him. End quote. The deer, after making a small curve eastward, directed its course south-westward, nearly in a straight line, running over forty-eight ploughed lands, comprising about ten thousand acres of the best land in Kent. Egbert thereupon surrendered to his niece the tract which the animal had traversed, and granted her a charter, which concluded with a singular curse upon any one who should infringe its provisions. With this land, Domniva endowed the abbey which she erected at Minster, according to some accounts, upon the spot where the church now stands, though others represent the ancient and handsome mansion now known as the abbey, 
as occupying the site of Domniver's foundation. An embankment was raised across the island to mark the boundary of the land surrendered by the king, and some traces of it are still discernible in a ridge near the Prospect Inn, on the summit of Mount Pleasant. The spot where Thunor is said to have been swallowed by the earth, and which was long known as Thunor's Leap, is not far from the Prospect, and has very much the appearance of a long-abandoned chalk-pit. Its depth is considerable, and the brink overhung with brambles. It is now called the Smuggler's Leap, from a tradition that a famous free trader, endeavouring to evade the pursuit of an active officer of the preventive service, was precipitated with his horse into the hollow, which is said to have been haunted ever since by the ghost of the pursuer, who met with the fate which might have been anticipated, but which the smuggler seems to have escaped. The remarkable incidents of this story, sensational enough for an Adelphi drama of the Flying Dutchman and Three-Fingered Jack period, are said to have occurred in the early part of the last century. Anthony Gill, an active and intrepid officer of the preventive service, had long been endeavouring to compass the apprehension of a smuggler as bold and as active as himself, but whose name has not been preserved. One night, when a cargo of spirits had been landed under the lee of the Reculver Cliffs, and was on its way into the interior, the convoy was intercepted by Gill and his men at the turn of the road leading to Hearn. The smugglers fled in all directions, but Gill, who had recognised by the moonlight the man whom he was so anxious to secure, singled him out for pursuit, resolving to continue the chase until he had run him down. Both were well mounted, and outside the chapter of accidents success was likely to attend the man who rode the best horse, unless, indeed, the smuggler could find a refuge to which he could not be tracked. Such a place there was at that time, a cave near the hamlet of Manston, about a mile northward from the road from Sandwich to Ramsgate, and to gain this retreat the smuggler directed all his endeavours, galloping down Chislet Lane, then turning off sharp to the left, thundering over Sar Bridge, and rousing the sleepers of Monkton and Minster. Too closely pressed by Gill to reach the cave, he turned his horse's head northward, and urged the reeking and panting animal towards Akel, with what purpose can never be known. Probably he had no other than to outride his pertinacious pursuer. The closing incidents of that ride for life can only be surmised. Gill and his horse, both dead, were found next morning at the bottom of the old chalk-pit near Akel. Beneath them was the crushed and lifeless form of the smuggler's horse, but the desperate rider was never seen afterwards. The manner of his escape must have been a terribly perplexing mystery, unless, as seems very probable, the Thanet folk solved it by ascribing it to the agency of the devil. From Mount Pleasant I strolled on to the straggling village of Monkton, pleasantly situated on the southern slope of the island. The little church, which looks ancient, but is in good substantial condition, is built of flints and bricks, some of the latter having the appearance of Roman. 
a very agreeable exception to the want of shade which characterises most of the roads in Thanet. I believe the only other is a portion of the road between St. Lawrence and Pegwell, and that is shaded on one side only, is presented by the road from Monkton to Minster, and thence to the junction with the road from Ramsgate to Sandwich, near the Sportsman Inn, where the cliffs subside into the shell-strewn flats which stretch away to the Stour. The latter portion of the road is shaded by trees on both sides, and the road being narrow, their branches meet overhead, forming an arch of verdure very refreshing to the eye after a long walk in the glare of the sun. From the church at Monkton to the village of Minster is about two miles. The church at the latter place is ancient, but the mixture of styles in the architecture seems to indicate partial reconstruction at different periods. The carved oak seats are undoubtedly antique, and with the handsome roof give a good appearance to the interior. After refreshing myself with a glass of ale at the bell, I strolled down the shaded road before mentioned, and looked once more upon the shining waters of Pegwell Bay from the pleasant garden of the Bellevue Hotel. There I dined that day, and there, on that bright September afternoon, I saw the shallow waters of the bay dotted with shrimpers, with their hand-nets and baskets, pursuing the staple industry of the village. Pegwell is the chief seat of the potted shrimps trade, many men and boys being employed in the capture of the tiny crustaceans, and a considerable number of hands, chiefly women and girls, in preparing and potting them. Early in the evening I strolled back to Minster, and in a few minutes was seated in the train which was to bear me back to London. In concluding this record of a delightful ramble, I have only to recommend those in quest of a week's recreation to go over the same ground in the same manner, and the admirers of the works of Charles Dickens in particular to at least visit Cobham and Strood and Rochester and Canterbury with the most portable edition of those works of the great novelist which have associated those places with his genius. May they enjoy the ramble as much as I did. End of chapter 14 and end of In Kent with Charles Dickens by Thomas Frost Recording by Ruth Golding